0: What's up everybody and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 11, the 420 Special. We're joined today by the Managing Director of Ganjier and Master of Connoisseurship, Derek Gilman. Derek offers some valuable insight on cannabis culture, connoisseurship, and community. Learn more about the Ganjier program at ganjier.com. That's G-A-N-J-I-E-R.com. Enjoy the show, and happy 420! Derek, thank you, man, for coming on and and welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Rob, I'm grateful for the opportunity, man. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely a conversation uh, in the making, as we'll explain here. I'm happy to connect with you and and talk about connoisseurship and ganja and just the cannabis industry overall. It's been a a fun year. About a we're only a quarter in, and there's been you know some new states pushing legalization, some changes across the board, but also just uh, growing pains for the industry overall.
1: Yeah, there's uh, the cannabis industry is ever evolving, you know, as old as, uh, as cannabis is and as long as people have been consuming it, we had that hundred year kind of pause button through prohibition. And uh, as a result, it's, it's, uh, it's an industry still trying to find its legs in many ways.
0: Yeah, the hundred years of stigma really takes a long time to clear away. It's not as simple as changing the rec laws or changing a few like governmental perspectives. It's kind of embedded in society.
1: Yeah, stigma stigma. I think mostly rests with the older generations that were subjected to the propaganda. You know, whether it be the
0: reefer madness.
1: Yeah, my grandparents that were subjected to reefer madness, or my generation that got put through, you know, that had to tolerate the Reagan administration and the DARE program that Nancy rolled out. Um, it seems that the war on drugs um, is finally starting to diminish. And I think, you know, like there's a lot of, a lot of. A lot of the younger folks today, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: but there's a lot of younger people that look at cannabis and they like roll their eyes, you know, and like, are you kidding me?
0: <laughs> that we would have had such a, like a, a societal argument over the last few decades over it, just yeah. a, on a substance similar to alcohol or similar to other more therapeutic things than alcohol, even for bringing some benefits.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you so know I mean? Look at caffeine, okay? Caffeine is an incredibly powerful drug. You know, if you ever want to see how powerful caffeine is, just look at the line outside of Starbucks. You see all these people first thing in the morning. Everybody's in the line, head down, you know, just give me the fix. I just need the fix.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then our our legislation around caffeine is slim to none uh, across the board. You know, it would be crazy if you could see really which – coffee plant your coffee came from you know the the package tag and the metric uh tracking we have for cannabis if that were around for coffee or for like a bowl of cereal the back all the back of the box would be an audit log and yeah and text. And those
1: <laughs> products would be a lot more expensive and it would take a lot longer for them to get to you because the supply chain would be all screwed up as well
0: <laughs> oh yeah over
1: regulation is never good you know, right. I mean, we could turn a black, we could turn a black market for tomatoes if we wanted to, if you started over-regulating tomatoes.
0: Hey, if you need to get a underground ketchup and salsa market started, maybe that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. a, <laughs> we could talk about that after the episode. But yeah, yeah. I think that harkens to the, the tomato model that Ed Rosenthal is, has talked about where, you know, the the proper legislation and regulations for cannabis is similar to tomato plants. You know, you can... Can grow them if you want, or you can buy them, or buy products made out of them. It kind of frees the, um, the the playing field there without having to fall in line and and pay your dues as heavily.
1: Yeah, yeah. Stigmas are easing. Restrictions will ease over time as well.
0: Right. Yeah. Especially seeing that Missouri has come online this year and and with a bang as well, generating just an insane amount of revenue as all of the state of Kansas goes there as well uh, but it's crazy to see the midwest finally joining the the west and the east coast and taking a note out of Colorado's book i think Colorado's been kind of in a uh, like a wasteland or a desert of cannabis laws but now that it's, Oklahoma and Missouri's there
1: let's not kid ourselves cannabis is consumed everywhere on the planet whether it's legal or not, it has it has been for a long time and will continue to be. Um, it's just up to the you know legislators uh, getting on the team and understanding uh, that the easiest way to you know wrap your arms around something and have more control is to make it legal and not keep it illegal.
0: Right, right. It feels that getting legislators to understand or spreading the awareness and education throughout the industry is something that everyone I think agrees on everyone that's in our types of positions or in companies like ours but maybe it's not it's easier said than done and to actually spread that awareness or to take action towards educating take something a little more uh, a little more serious and perhaps a little more along the lines of the Gangier program
1: um, yeah you know and and Gangier is certainly less about uh political advocacy uh, and more about um, the fun stuff about cannabis. The passion and the love there. It's more about how cannabis um, interacts with our senses. What makes cannabis desirable? The aroma, the flavor, the experience it imparts on us. That's more what Gangier is about, you know, in training people to, uh, to be able to help and guide others in their choices to make sure they make the uh, the decisions that align with their goals.
0: Right. And being able to appreciate the plant as more than a commodity or more than a, like a utility, but those nuances, like the different appear, appearance, aroma and flavors you can get, I think, serve to, to deepen the experience overall. You know, you can take kind of that initial level of connoisseurship for any cannabis consumer and, after a little bit of conversation around, you know, aroma effects, you can see them start to take the next steps down and kind of find that, um, almost like, I hate to say pretentious, but it's like a, there's something about connoisseurship where you know a lot about whatever it is you're rating, whether it be books or wine or cigars, that you have that confidence to tell good flour from bad flour or a nice aroma from a poor one. And, it seems like the more, you're, the more you talk about it and start thinking about it, the more that it feels more natural to really break the product down. I think before the Gangier program, I was aware of some of the aroma and flavors, but I had not looked too much at the real differences in effects. I definitely knew the you know, sedative versus a little more upper, but really trying to diagnose how those effects come on. I think for me, that it always feels like they're kind of creeping up like over the, over the top of my head or kind of down from my eyes. I can't explain it quite, but it's been a, a good experience trying to decipher that or even put words on a feeling that uh, I just sort of accepted before.
1: Ultimately, Rob, it comes down to more than just getting high.
0: Okay? Indeed. <laughs> it, it's
1: more than just getting high. You know, it's no different than, you know, the beer market. You could like, turn the clock back to the 1970s and it was all just about getting drunk. Okay, the the flavor really wasn't something that people were paying a whole lot of attention to. But as that market matured, as the consumers got an appreciation for those other qualities in beer that made it desirable, the aroma, the flavor, you roll the clock forward to today and you can just see, I mean, there's hundreds of microbrewery companies out there all making a very specialized product that they're all very proud about because of those those differences speak because of that aroma, that flavor. Um, right. Yeah, so it's only a matter of time before that, you know, the cannabis market begins to mature and evolve. Um, and we're already beginning to see some of the signs of that. We're seeing it. We're seeing the conversation shift from what's the THC content to, Oh, what's the terpene content? Right, that conversation really wasn't happening much outside of some very tight circles a few years ago, um, and now that conversation is moving more and more into the forefront.
0: Yeah, just we're biting off little pieces of that entourage effect, huh? To focus on as a as an industry, and probably none of them are the right one to to focus exclusively on. Cannabis is very unique in that it has so many psychoactive and non psychoactive compounds, but the consumer and like a from an outside cannabis perspective, I think needs to take things kind of incrementally. You can't just throw them in that pool of the entourage effect. And it's harder to it's harder to describe if you don't have something to hang your hat on, which I think the industry tried to use THC percentage and CBD first. And I think California now shows the TERP percentage on their labels in the state, um, at least the overall. And so does Missouri and a few others.
1: So connoisseurship begins with awareness of these differences. It then moves into an appreciation for these differences. And then ultimately it moves to how do I maximize (laughs) these differences? How do I achieve the best flavor in the cannabis? Either through the tools that I'm using in the consumption, the methods that I'm using, the techniques that I'm using through the consumption.
0: Right. So even the quality of the f- product itself isn't the end all be all of connoisseurship. It comes down to the ritual and the process, the the tools and consumption methods, the, the grinder or the mill that you use, and so on.
1: Absolutely. Um yeah, I'm a nut when it comes to the tools. I my grinder, since you mentioned grinder, I use a stainless steel grinder. Um I'm not a fan of the aluminum grinders. Um, we know aluminum shavings aren't healthy uh, yes. to get into your system, uh, especially, you know, for the nervous system. So that said, um, yeah, I use a stainless steel grinder. The thing weighs about like two and a half pounds. <laughs> Anytime somebody goes to pick it up, it's like, whoa.
0: They're surprised at first, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The little shout out to flour mill. I've been using one of those for a little while, mm-hmm. um, which uses a milled top instead of teeth so that it, it breaks the flour down with, without cutting so much and without kind of letting some of those volatile terpenes free. I think there's some testing that needs to be done there to really make that claim, but I'm enjoying it. And it definitely has that heft to it that uh, it's, it, it feels nice when you're reaching for it in the ritual and you're using it on the, in the workspace or on your tray or lap. And I I've think seen a that, few of
1: those mills around. Um, do you find yourself having to clean it more or less often?
0: I will say that if the flower's is particularly sticky, uh, which it is in many cases, there's a good deal of cleaning on the top of the mill that needs to be done, like with a toothbrush or something a little more than, than you'd have to just pick out of a, uh, a tooth grinder. So I think the weighing one versus the other is maybe not the right conversation. I think they're probably doing the same, uh, the same job. With slightly different form factor and kind of experience around it,
1: do you find you get a, a finer or coarser material that that comes out of that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. the The mill here has a different size um, milling plates, so you mm-hmm. could put smaller or larger ones. I will say it seems more consistent, but I mean, you should do a side by side with the old uh, sharp stone and and take a look.
1: So you can customize. Um... The coarseness of the grind with that, based on the plates that you're using. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I I tend to prefer a coarser grind. Um, I find that um, the larger, those larger pieces tend to preserve the um, flavor a bit more versus something that's been very finely ground. Um, You know, I tend to smoke joints. And uh, as you know, as you're smoking a joint, you've got the heat, you know, right there at the... uh, at the cherry, and that that hot smoke and air is being drawn through on each hit, and um, I find with the more finely ground material that um, you tend to get more of a pre-vaporization occurring um,
0: throughout mm. that material before. Oh, it's so the first few hits you pull are kind of dragging all the flavor right away.
1: Well, I find it that happens more so with finely ground versus coarse ground. And that's just in my own personal experience. Yeah. You know, because obviously with that coarser ground material, maybe you get some hot air and smoke going around the, the, the outside of those chunks. But it's not going to penetrate the the core of those little chunks until they've been combusted, and then it opens up the little the flavor that's kind of right residing within. That's right. that's my theory anyway.
0: <laughs> hey, that's a it's a good theory to me. I think that um, the, something else I learned in the Gangier program about joints and rolling your own, um, being able to appreciate the cannabis flower at kind of every temperature level is very unique about the joint um, versus other consumption methods like a bong is that's being hit by the by the lighter or flame right away or a dab or you know other things there um i I don't know that method
1: of combustion is is uniquely um a combination of of combustion and vaporization because of the fact of that hot air and smoke traveling through the material that is yet to be combusted and so you do start to get some of those um more highly volatile compounds um Along the way,
0: um, right, kind of from every stage, all all at once, to really experience that flower, or try to at least, huh?
1: Yeah, <laughs> you also get a buildup of you know the oils and resins, you know, from the earlier hits that build up later on into it, and so you tend to get this this um, this evolution of the flavor from the in that first third of that joint to the second third to that final third. You know, that kind of adds, uh, you know, different dimensions of complexity.
0: Some stages there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, to boot on the rolling your own side, once you master rolling a nice joint, maybe with a little bit of conage or like a little shape to it, it feels great. It's a good part of the ritual just by itself. I mean, once you roll it yourself and you get a clean burning roll and you're just satisfied with it from flower to pre-roll... I will say that's kind of a, a, like a keystone or like a little pillar for connoisseurship as well, just mastering the technique.
1: There were some, there were some amongst the Ganjia Council that advocated for requiring all Ganjia candidates to demonstrate the ability to uh, roll a joint. Oh, on the spot, rolling. Being, uh, yeah, before they could earn their <laughs> certification. Um, yeah. We do not make that a requirement because it turns <laughs> out there's some students that go through the program that uh, vaporize exclusively, and they are specialists right. um, and experts when it comes to vaporizing. For and finding so, that right
0: temperature or the right yeah. methods there too.
1: Yeah, and so you know, requiring someone who's never going to smoke a joint to have the ability to roll one just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Though so I can tell you about eighty. 80- at least eight out of 10, if not nine out of 10 students that come through the program are joint smokers.
0: Yeah. That's what I noticed being up there too. I think we had one guy, um, with a spoon pipe still that preferred not to roll, but I think that yeah, it's, it's an element of consumption and of cannabis consumerism that kind of comes along with the experience too, you know, new to the plant, new to the industry, buying a pre-roll is easy. It's quick It's ready for you. And most of the time it's cheap because it's shake or kind of poor quality flour in there unless you're buying premium. But once you're able to make those yourselves and and get deeper into it, I think that's just another toe in the water of connoisseurship. Yeah,
1: you know, of course, you know, it's like, you know, for the coffee drinkers out there to to go back to that analogy, um, do you prefer your coffee to be pre ground you know, far in advance of when you're going to make and brew that cup, or do you prefer to you know have that bean ground up freshly right ground before it's morning. brewed? You yeah. know,
0: yeah. I think that your approach towards connoisseurship in the toolkit is unlike any that I've seen before. It was news to me, and I'm still trying to seek down, seek out similar tools. I think when when I met you had the um, joint ring. Um, for your finger, that had a, the little sliding guy on it yep. with, a, with a top hat. And sir with Smokes your, A Lot. Exactly. I, how could I forget a name like that? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> Sir Smokes A Lot riding on the little uh, joint clip on your ring. And um, I saw your golden tray as well and and more. How did you fall into this kind of way of bringing back antique smoking devices and and tools into the more modern cannabis realm.
1: A close friend of mine that I went to college with, um, down at Tulane, many, many moons ago, he had an antique lighter. Uh, it was a Dunhill, it was an antique Dunhill lighter. And it just made an impression on me. I loved the style. I loved the class that it brought. Um, I loved the uniqueness of the lighter itself; that it wasn't something that everybody else had. And um, over time, began to seek out uh, various antique tools to complement my uh, daily uh, consumption regimen. And now I have, uh, yeah, an antique uh, rolling tray, the uh, the finger ring cigarette holder. I've got. Um, these match safes. I've begun using matches uh, to light my joints, and so I have these antique match safes. A collection of those. I've uh, I've gone deep, deep down the antique consumption tool rabbit hole. Um, over time, I got to be honest though, I realized that I didn't want. I, I wasn't looking for collections of each of these items. Right. That for me, I just wanted the coolest, most unique one I could find to use on a daily basis. I don't want, I don't, you know, I don't have a shelf that I like to go and look at the shelf of stuff. You know, I like to use it. That's where I get my enjoyment from. And so over time I've, I've paired my, my items down to just being the finest examples I could find Hmm. in each, in each of these items. Um, and that's what I use on a regular basis now.
0: So kind of keeping it in the regular rotation and not building a, a showroom of your old bongs and and antiques yeah, and collectibles. A bunch of stuff
1: that's just, you know, that's gonna collect dust and you know, I, I get the yeah. enjoyment from the actual using of it. I love I love having that, that, that antique, you know, fingering cigarette holder, you know, with Sir Smokes a lot on it. And um, just knowing that it's over hundred and twenty years old. Okay. Crazy to That's think that, that, all, the, yeah, all somebody... the smoking
0: and conversation that was had over that ring. Yeah, <laughs> ah, that
1: just for me that just has a lot more character, and um, I have a lot of fun with it.
0: I think it's a um, a, a ton of potential there in the crystal and goldware and things that came from kind of that early era of of cigarettes that um, hasn't hasn't quite found mainstream popularity. I know a lot of folks fall into just the most accessible brands. The national brands, these folks that are pushing all their marketing out there, it can be rewarding or intrinsic by itself just to find something on your own, or like you mentioned, to know that you have something unique or that's that's rare in the room.
1: Yeah. So uh, Seth Rogan, I know he's he likes to collect antique ashtrays.
0: Ah. That's nice. that's one
1: of the things he's into. And um he went on to develop, you know, that house plant. Uh, company that makes some what they call connoisseur level tools, um, and they are they're, they're they are a step up from the average tool. Um, however, I would suggest to people if you're into personalizing your experience, don't go out to just whatever brand is is building something. Cigarettes were used for a long time, <laughs> and there are. Lots of neat ashtrays in every type of material, from hand blown glass to sterling silver, to everything in between. Um, you know, ashtrays, the 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 cigarette holders, cigarette cases, various lighters. Why use that that Bic lighter with that shitty fuel that they put in there when you can go <laughs> and get yourself some neat older antique lighter. And there's lots of them out there in, in every budget. Okay. Uh, you don't need a lot of money to, to get yourself a cool antique lighter. And now you could fill it up with some high grade filtered butane. And all of a sudden now you're getting tastier hits because you're not using that cheap fuel anymore.
0: Yeah. So it's the, the, the conversation isn't always about smoking more as a connoisseur. It's actually about smoking better huh? or smoking or getting more out of that smoke from your, from your side?
1: Elevating the enjoyment of your experience. And that can mean different things to different people. For me, I get enjoyment from handling the antique tools and using them. I get enjoyment from working on my techniques and methods to improve um, the flavor, maximize the flavor that I'm getting. And perhaps that's everything from you know toasting my joint to light it rather than drawing the flame in. Okay, yes. which could which could contaminate the flavor of the joint. So I toast it uh, to help preserve some flavor. Um, and then I take light puffs on that joint because I don't want to draw in too much heat from that cherry, as I, mem- as I mentioned earlier, because it'll pre-vaporize a lot of those flavors. You could draw real hard on those first couple hits and get a couple of really tasty hits. But the balance of that joint will have lost its flavor because you pulled it out too soon.
0: It's going to be pretty harsh the rest of the ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's it's a interesting thing to point out there as well that the connoisseurship even with the tools side, it's at every price level and it, it, with cannabis products too, there's a way to appreciate quality really at any at any bracket. It's not something that's reserved for like premiumization or for top shelf products only. I think having connoisseurship or having that mindset around your products at any level, and maybe products in any industry is uh, approachable. It's or possible. There's
1: value propositions everywhere, and then it depends on what kind of uh, you know what kind of uh, researcher you are, because there's lots of different places to acquire things. Um, and so, if you if you're really into hunting stuff down, you can find exactly what you're looking for, and usually, you know, find it at the price that you can afford as well.
0: Right. Right, and man, as soon as we can sell or as soon as products can move across state borders, there will be a whole nother realm of connoisseurship and hunting things down. I can't imagine the being able to say, okay, I want to find this like Durban poison from Humboldt County, like outdoor grown. And I also want to get something from, you know, Florida, like some Triangle Cush, like down in, in its homeland and be like smoking those on the same tray or, you know, Appreciating both those those towars or those differences in their cultivars. How about when the, the international markets open up? Ooh, and we, and yeah. the, and, Hindu and, the, Kush. and the Santa
1: Marta Gold starts coming back or the Thai stick starts coming
0: back. Yeah, it's just unreal. I think that those days would be um um pretty wild like from a, a purchasing perspective. Like you just open up your e commerce online and say, like, well, which country am I ordering? delicious cannabis from today. It's going to be unreal to think yeah. that, Oh, we used to be limited to only our state licenses.
1: <laughs> pay attention to the, pay attention to the supply chain. When you, hmm. uh, as people start reaching out or when the, when that when that happens, how it's been handled. It's uh, it can be grown, right? It can be cured, right? Um, but if it doesn't get handled, right from the time that it leaves the cultivator to the time it gets to the consumer, um, bad things can happen, and good quality A lot can, go can go wrong go in that supply chain in quick order.
0: Yeah, definitely. Point being, get mean, it,
1: try and get it as farmer direct as you can, with this less middle people in between. The more you can get it directly from the farmer, the less opportunity there is for it to have been mishandled along the
0: way. Right for mistakes or poor poor treatment with storage, light, temperature everything everything in between can impact those those delicious trichome heads that oh yeah you want intact on your sample or on your flower yeah. <laughs> well what do, you, what do you say we light up here today um we're dropping this as a 420 episode i think we can we can consume a little bit and maybe burn one here and talk shop with the listeners a little bit more
1: let's do it let's do it all right let me
0: I've got some nyc diesel here from a, a company in las vegas called polaris that i've really enjoyed the flower they put out oh, wow they have a a head cheese that has one of the terps in it i think it's is over 20 milligrams per gram it's just a, a juicy cultivar and their supply chain is seems to be on point because it stays juicy every time it's the same thing i think consistency is kind of hard and in agriculture in general, but in, with cannabis to get that same flavor and, and appearance and everything, uh, a lot of work has to be done there. A lot of it has to be maintained.
1: Definitely. Uh, I've heard Kev make the analogy, Kevin Jodry, um, that cannabis needs to be treated like microgreens, effectively in order to, uh, to preserve, you know, those, uh, those finer qualities that it has just because they're the, most of those flavor and aroma compounds are just highly volatile.
0: Um, right, that even without ill intent, um, they can be disrupted, or even without the thought there, uh, can really set it down a bad path.
1: Just uh, just an hour in a warm truck.
0: Right, that's all it takes for you to get a great smell when you open the jar, <laughs> and then nothing else and after then,
1: that. Where'd it go? Where'd it go? It was so loud when I opened it
0: yes yeah i think we've all had that product before unfortunately the supply chain in the industry is something that's still being worked out i think distributors and manufacturers are doing their best to treat the product well but sometimes there's margins and budgeting and every other variable that kind of gets in the way there
1: yeah yeah they're gonna need refrigerated trucks and refrigerated storage rooms and
0: which yeah it just adds to the uh Operating costs too, with shrinking margins, that then makes the conversation even tighter. (laughs) Uh, No fun. The the lovely industry that we're in.
1: No fun. Let's talk more about connoisseurship. That's more. That's a funner topic.
0: (laughs) Definitely, yeah.
1: (laughs) I honestly, I, I don't personally pay a whole lot of attention to the cannabis industry. Um.
0: Right, being able to address it just from the point of advocacy and and speaking with people that have passion and the, the interest to become a gangier helps to insulate you from some of that, uh, from some of that, I'd think.
1: I just enjoy geeking out on, uh, on the assessment process, um, really paying attention to those, those nuances in the aroma, um, working on developing my palate um, identifying, being able to pick out what those aromas are, you know, to other relatable.
0: Yeah. I think that was something very interesting. We talked about in the program is trying to find those experiences or those other aromas and flavors that you can define or that you have and like linking the same thing to the cannabis product that you're smoking. I think it's a, at first a consumer can be almost overwhelmed by the terpene and the taste, uh, the of cannabis flower just it can taste kind of like burnt herbal or like kind of skunky that it's almost too hard for them to tell that there's more flavors behind that if you peel back the layers or dive deeper to find the you know hints of citrus or uh, different herbs that can present themselves in cannabis aroma
1: it takes time to develop the palate um, it's for for first time consumers it may be easier um, to discern those flavors through a vaporizer. Okay. Without Uh. the, without the combustion happening, there is less smoke to have to, you know, to filter through. Um, I vaporized exclusively for four years. Um, I smoked for 20 years leading up to that, to my four year vaporizing experiment, (laughs) but I vaporized exclusively for four years. I really enjoyed it. Um, I did notice that, Certain cultivars, the flavors would transition through better than others, um, where certain ones would smell great, but just didn't taste like anything through the vaporizer. Um, I smoked a joint for the first time after four years, and I forget what the occasion was, but I got higher (laughs) than I had been in that four years of vaporizing and realized I had been missing something. Um, Uh. It's tasted like ash, (laughs) <laughs> um but over the next 6 months, 4 to 6 months I was able to redevelop and get my get my joint palette back.
0: Yeah, you kind of have to get used to whatever that method is that you consume and from there you can explore the the nuances deeper. I think even changing the joint paper can really throw me for a loop sometimes um and put just put a different taste on the whole thing. What kind of papers you use, Rob? Uh, right now elements' uh, been uh, bouncing around a few different things but I know that there are fine rice paper alternatives
1: I use um, I use the club rolling papers the gumless club gum rolling papers uh, yeah. that they don't Dude. even really make anymore um,
0: I need to try if- those sometime without the gum how how does it actually close you need to overlay it a little bit so that it keeps itself down long enough for you to clamp it or is there a trick to that
1: there is a trick actually so um the clubs they come in different sizes they come in a single width size which is it's just a standard rolling paper size um, and then they make double wides which are the ones i tend to go for um, with the double wides they're pre-folded down the middle and what I'll do is I'll just lick along that uh, – I'll just run that fold along the edge of my tongue, um, and then I'll tear them in half, effectively taking that double-wide and making it a single-wide paper. But through that, that, um, that tearing process, that licking and tearing process, the fibers of the paper become exposed. You get that torn edge. Those fibers, once licked – you know, when you're rolling the joint, you're ready for that final seal – um those fibers serve as the glue
0: can get some traction a little bit they
1: actually yeah those fibers will actually just kind of grab on you know, like paper mache kind of how it kind of holds on to itself
0: yeah yeah that is a good that is good advice i should i need to try that again i think the <laughs> my first one was just coming undone as i was you know as i'm lighting it as i'm So the thing
1: it. you have to tear <laughs> it um and I, what i learned is it it helps to moisten before you tear you get more fibers that kind of come up Um, through that process as well, as opposed to just tearing it, um, on the single wide ones, you got to fold down that top edge just ever so slightly, and then you just run that edge along your tongue and then you can tear that tiny little strip off the top and then still get that torn, that torn edge. Still get
0: that rough piece. Yep. That's the trick. Hey, I'll, I'll try them next time, but you said clubs are not made or they're hard to track down? They
1: stopped making them. Yeah. So, um. You can go on eBay and find old stock. Buy the them stock up now, of them. man.
0: Yeah, they,
1: they were they were the lightest paper made at the time. I think the elements come close, but it was effectively ten grams per square meter, which is exceptionally light and thin paper. So
0: thin, yeah. Yeah. I think my uh, my daily driver actually is a vaporizer, uh, the with the Puffco, I tend to smoke concentrates, like on the preferring solvent list, but they're hard to find in Las Vegas. All but right. I, I definitely appreciate that the different palate you get from combustion and vaporization, though. I think there's something about the, the, the joint as it burns down, as that complete flavor comes, that's just a different experience than that clean, quick vaporizer hit, which is sometimes preferable as well or that one burst of flavor versus the longer run.
1: Yeah and the effects themselves tend to be different too.
0: Yeah, I can I can see a lot of that. Uh, the more sedative effects I think come in a little bit more in the joint, a little bit more in the blunt or the combustion side mm-hmm. versus maybe a headier run on the vape. Agreed. So, did you always smoke? Derek, all the way from your like early teenage years, or what did you start consuming cannabis in college?
1: Um, so cannabis was in my bloodstream before I exited the womb. <laughs> <laughs> my parents were a couple of hippies, and there was cannabis smoke in the air the entire time my mom was pregnant. Um, some of my Born earliest memories are being in a darkened living room with my folks and their friends, sitting in a smoke circle as the hippies used to like to do back in the day, and being just a link in the chain, making sure that that roach got over to the next person. And I wasn't pulling off a hit, you know, when I was five years old, but I was just passing it along. Um, so cannabis was always yeah. around. Um, I came, I came home from school in the third grade one day and there was hay bale size bales of cannabis weed there was four of them I remember four hay bales in the house when I came home from school that day <laughs> oh man um, yeah um, that okay. said I didn't try cannabis until my sophomore year of high school which at the time was a bit later than many of my uh, my friends
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, it just didn't. Uh, do you think having it so open or kind of so available made it less of a forbidden fruit kind of effect for you?
1: Exactly. It, it just wasn't taboo in my household. Um, my parents weren't the most motivated um, individuals. or uh, <laughs> And so I, it, was, it was one of those, hey, I don't want to be like them sort of situations.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think uh, yeah.
1: I love my parents, and they were great, and they were always very good to me. Don't get me wrong, but I had I had higher ambitions. <laughs>
0: yeah, dude, definitely, definitely up to some ambitious work now. You know, pushing, pushing connoisseurship and uh, ushering some cannabis advocates forward. How was it to go about designing the assessment protocol or figuring out a way to take this abstract idea of quality flower? relatively and find those concrete points and working into the assessment.
1: i <sighs> coming. Well, I did a lot of research, you know, fortunately we had um, each of these other gustatory based industries from which we could, you know, draw knowledge and inspiration from coffee, wine, chocolate, cheese, cigars, Um, each of these industries have trained professionals, um, and their own assessment protocols for quantifying the quality of each of those products. And so I began with researching each of those, how they went about doing what they did, um, quickly, uh, realized that it was, you know, the interaction with the senses that, uh, degustation was all about and what, what really, you know, um, Define desirability, the appearance, the aroma, the flavor, and um, once I had those categories, it was just you know identifying the criteria within each of those categories, um, you know. Yeah, and again, I like, like I, a I, lot
0: starts on that list at first. Really. <laughs> it
1: was a big. You know, I grew up around cannabis, but beyond that, um, my dad um, taught me how to how to grow. When I was in junior high school, even before I was smoking it, I learned how to grow cannabis. Oh, okay. And, um, and so just having that deep history um, and experience to rely on, and then ultimately bringing in, you know, the seventeen other members of the Ganja Council.
0: Yes, um, and what a council, with right?
1: Over six hundred years of combined experience within the Gangier Council, um, coming from different areas of expertise. We get the scientist in Dr. Jeffrey Raber. We get the multi-generational cultivator in Wendy Kornberg. We get our solventless expert in Nicotee. We get our hashish expert in Frenchie. We got, you know, Kev with a deep experience that, you know, Kev has. Um, and right. so, I, so yeah. I, I built a, an initial working prototype that, um, we all sat down with and, uh, and massaged from there.
0: Okay. So it was a, it's a group effort then from the, the council to, to really decide how these criteria affect the score and how the assessment breaks down.
1: Yeah. I built, I built the initial framework. Uh, I, I will take credit cause I did do the work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I built the initial framework from which, you know, the bulk of it is still intact
0: Right. Um, all it, of, was just, based it was just, it was some feedback. tweaking. It
1: was, yeah, this criteria is not necessary. Oh, you're missing this criteria. Aha. Here's, these should be scored and these we shouldn't score. We should just identify these. Um, that's where a lot of the debate and, uh, happened. Yeah.
0: Oh man. I imagine those would be fun debates to, <laughs> to be a fly on the wall for As how many folks are part of the council now?
1: Uh, there's a total of 18 members in the Ganjie Council. Okay. And for what it's worth, we filmed um, the Ganjie Council meetings that we had. And so there will hopefully at some point in the future be an opportunity to be that fly on the wall um, because we've preserved those conversations. And I've watched Great. them. I've gone back and I've watched a couple <laughs> times and it's fun because you, you actually feel like you're in the room because um, nobody's playing to the camera at that point. The cameras were literally just recording the conversations as they were happening.
0: Nice. It's very very natural then what to watch and almost participate in the as it as it boils down to the these core criteria. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see what the what the Gangier Council is doing next. I know that there's there have been two additional levels of the Gangier certificate that are planned, or are they still in the prototype or kind of in the future mode for Gangier?
1: Yeah, we are in development on an advanced level to the certification, which is uh, the next level above the certified level. Um, And ultimately, we're going to have an executive level above that, um, tailoring the steps after the SOMAE program. What we're doing right now and what's going to come out next is going to be an introductory level. After having some conversations with um, the court of Master Somaez, after uh, having some conversations with um, the fellow that built the Cicerone program, which is the program in beer, it's the equivalent of what we do, Uh, we discovered that um, the best way to accelerate industry adoption is through offering an introductory level. Our certified level as it stands, um, it's um, it takes a commitment. It takes a genuine commitment in, in time and effort and money um, to go through. And yes. a lot of people, um, there's only a certain amount of people that are willing to make that a commitment. While there's many others that would uh, be willing to make a much smaller commitment, but would allow us the opportunity to introduce them to cannabis connoisseurship, introduce them to our assessment protocol. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, I think that's that sounds like an awesome step forward. There, I know that um, you know having having walked the path now to the certified Gangier status, it was a it was an endeavor doing the studying before, you know, making sure to to pass that test with flying colors and and be ready to assess flower live. I think. It was a wonderful experience and something that I, you know, I really appreciate and am happy that I did, but I can see that having an introductory level could definitely help push the, um, push the fronts and the knowledge and just awareness as well about the program. Um, I think that's awesome. And yeah, mm-hmm. dude, I just, I'm happy that you came back on. I think we can tell the story here of the original first episode of apartment 113, uh, the, the lost episode. Or when I first had the podcast started, Derek here was my first guest, and we recorded a wonderful episode talking all about connoisseurship and the A program that went south as my voice was not recorded through the whole thing. And uh, I think that was actually a sober recording, believe it or not.
1: A uh, sober recording? All I know, it was. we had a wonderful conversation, Rob. I was on my A-game that day. We had, it was, uh, similar topics that we covered today, but there were some different ones too. And, um, yeah, we get to the end of the, uh, the interview and you say, wait, hold on. I just got to check something. And I remember like, I think there was an uh uh-oh in there and, uh, you went on to go and tell me that unfortunately, and, and your exuberance of beginning the interview, um, yeah, the recording, unfortunately, didn't get uh,
0: preserved. Yeah, there was this feeling of like heat, I think, as I saw the, that cross across the microphone while it was colored red, realizing the impact there as we came around the corner. And I think it was, it was right as you were explaining that at one time recording high rollers that you had the lens cap on, which I think it, that made me check, just to double check, and uh, man... What, a, what an episode, and I'm going to play some of that after this interview with the gaps and all, uh, just to have a little Easter egg for the listeners.
1: Yeah, <laughs> cool. That would be fun.
0: But great, man. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, where can folks find out more about you and the Ganjie Council and Ganjie Program?
1: Quite simply, you can go to ganjie.com. That's G-A-N-J-I-E-R.com. Um, for more info about the Gone GA program, uh, for more info about me, uh, you can go on to my social channels on either uh, Instagram uh, or LinkedIn. Just look up my name, Derek Gilman. Find out a little bit more about me. I don't spend a whole lot of time on social, to be honest with you, though.
0: <laughs> hey, it's probably for the best, right? Yeah. Hey. Well, Thanks happy for 420,
1: there. everybody. And happy 420 to you, Rob. Thank you so much again for having me today. What's, uh, what's next on your uh, 420 agenda, man? Las Vegas on 420 sounds like a whole lot of madness.
0: Yeah, it's definitely chaos. I'll be doing some earlier shopping than that. <laughs> 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 Thanks again, Derek. Take care of you. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show and our range of services, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis operations consulting, agile product management, and connoisseurship services. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.
1: Gangier program has been, um, effectively a passion project of mine for the last few years now, and, um, genuinely pleased to see the recognition that it's received, um, and frankly, the success that we've had, um, you know, training people to become certified Gangiers, um, and, you know, for me, the measure of success is, is hearing the feedback from the graduates that have gone through the program, from the students that have gone through the program, um, and just hearing time after time how we met and or exceeded their expectations um, when they initially signed on for the program. So it's 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 been very gratifying. We weren't exactly sure how it would be accepted, in all honesty, Rob. Um, you know, we, we reached out to each of the members of the Gangier Council, um, told them what our idea and plans were, um, and each of them understood what we were hoping to achieve. And um, the question then was, could we build what we were setting out to achieve, which was rather ambitious. Um, and then ultimately would people, would, 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 would people uh, sign on, you know, to become part of this program um, that, you know, before we really started, you know, pushing our marketing campaign, many people didn't even know what the word ganjie was or how to say it. Yeah. You know, that was, that was really one of the driving motivations. Um Behind assembling the Gangier Council um, was actually twofold: um, was to bring in experts in um, with various skill sets and areas of expertise to, you know, paint this well-rounded curriculum uh, canvas that we were looking to put together, um, but also to identify um, well-known well-respected individuals within the cannabis community and cannabis industry that could um, not only endorse, but ultimately validate um, the curriculum that we've put together. Seed to smoke. (laughs) We're beyond sale, seed to smoke, because as you know, the the course also uh, covers connoisseurship uh, as the extracurricular course, uh, you know, in the program. You know, effective, what's been on my, lately, um, I'm happy to say I've begun harvesting some of my plants for this season and uh, have just begun sampling. Um, The Cherry West was the first plant to come down this year. Uh, You know, Freeborn selections, genetics, mean gene from Mendocino, whom I absolutely uh, love. And, yeah, I grew out as Cherry West this year, which did phenomenal in my new environment up here in Southern Humboldt, and um, it's been some super tasty smoke so far. Um, just this really incredibly deep and rich um, cherry uh, aroma that just directly translates through to the palate and to the flavor. Um, it's been a lot of fun, and it's got this this incredibly greasy um tactile quality to it, which makes it interesting to kind of roll, you know, because you go to roll it up. It doesn't really want to stick together so much. Um, it kind of, it's, it's, it kind of wants to fall apart, but not because it's overly dry, but because of this more kind of (laughs) greasy, this greasy resin quality that it has to it. The The tuck and roll. Yeah, the tuck and roll is tricky. Um, I'll tell you something really interesting. I noticed that uh, the first joint I rolled with this Cherry West, um, I had finished it up and I was letting it sit, you know, to dry for a minute, and uh, I went back to smoke it maybe ten minutes after I'd rolled it, and I had noticed the paper had become had begun turning translucent, had gone from this opaque white paper. To this translucent paper where I could completely see all the you know the cannabis inside the color of the cannabis inside it had made like again that greasy it was like oil had been applied to the paper um, and it was like see-through and I uh, I can't recall ever seeing that before yeah you'll see that you know typically after you begin to combust the joint and you begin to burn it some of those oils start to work their way through you'll get some of that you know browning or translucent quality to the paper. I never, I can't remember seeing it before on a, on a joint I hadn't sparked up yet. I'll explain why it's my preferred method as well as, uh, as well as the preferred method of nearly every person on the council. um, Save, well, Nikki Lestretto, um, Swami's partner in uh, Swami Select. Um, Nikki, unfortunately, uh, was diagnosed with COPD, the early stages of COPD a few years back. And after a lifetime of the joint being her preferred method of consumption, um, her hand was forced and she actually uh, converted over to vaporizing um but be, yeah yeah she's been enjoying it i know she's been enjoying uh moving over to vaporizing i know she misses joints too cuz she's mentioned as much um but to answer your question um the the joint um unlike any other method of uh, inhalation of cannabis flower is uniquely not only a method of combustion, obviously, you know, we're lighting that thing, um, but the joint also serves as um, as a vaporization tool as well. Um, and effectively, each hit that you take from a joint is, is some of that combusted material, that smoke. Um, but the heat, You know, just to the inside of that cherry, that hot air, that hot smoke being drawn through the rest of the joint, um, depending on how long you're pulling in any given hit, depending on how much, how intense you're pulling, how strongly you're pulling in any given hit, um, can affect the level of vaporization on the balance of that joint and how much of that flower vapes out, you know, before it's even combusted. Uh, Yeah, you know, cigar smokers, um, you know, who effectively, you know, consume cigars exclusively for flavor um, learned along the way um, that heat management is critical to that flavor experience. Um, You know, the, the cigar, you know, being, you know, rolled in the paper and having that cherry at one end and having the other material on the other end of the cherry and, you know, is similar to the joint in that sense. And so um, they're exceptionally careful with um, the heat source that they use, uh, the method of igniting that cigar, um, and then the method of smoking that cigar. Again, how strong they pull, how long they pull on any given hit. Um, you know, in short, you know, you you want to take you know light, you want to take light, short puffs um, as opposed to long, hard draws. And pre-vape, you could pre-vape, you know, a significant portion of that joint long before you've ever combusted it. Um, you know, if you've ever gotten to the second half of a joint and, uh, and, and the flavor is just completely gone, and maybe the first half of that joint was really flavorful, um, in all likelihood, it may have just been, it may have been a little bit too aggressive hitting on that thing. You know, so by the time you got, yeah, by the time you got to that second half, it was all the good stuff was already vaped out. And you're pretty much just combusting plant material. Yeah, I, I, I you know, effectively, there's a reason why, um, again, nearly every expert on the Ganjie Council um, has elected uh, and chooses the joint as their preferred uh, method of consumption. Um, it's years of experience that have come down to that. Um you know, we've all used other tools. We've all smoked from the bong. We've all had uh, vaporizers. We've all, we've, we've used chillums, hookahs. Um, there's many methods, you know, to, to uh, inhale cannabis. Um, but there's just something uniquely special about the joint. I haven't done the fumigation tent method yet myself. But we've all, I guess we, I guess hot boxing is a form of that right? <laughs> it's all an evolution. Um, and speaking of evolutions, one, of, one of my, one of my favorite lessons, um, in the online portion of the Gangier curriculum was the, uh, was a lesson with Nicotee on, um, on consumption of solventless concentrates. And he brought along all these tools that he'd been using over the last couple of decades And effectively, you know, demonstrated the evolution of consuming solventless concentrates, um, you know, from the early days of, you know, a titanium swing and a torch. (laughs) Well, yeah, now you can have a little rig, you know, and you're pushing a button and it's just going to heat up right to whatever temperature setting you set it to and... And you're good to go. Uh there's there's plenty, of, believe me, there's there's plenty of uh, uh, hash aficionados uh, with with scars on their forearms and fingers and hands <laughs> to play with those torches, man. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I mean, how good of an idea is it to take, you know, concentrate, (laughs) multiple doses of concentrated cannabis and be handling a a flame torch, you know, some (laughs) blowtorch, you're getting loaded, holding the torch, passing things around. Uh, Yeah, burns are are bound to happen. (laughs) I think your typical soccer mom is going to lean towards the vape pen over the blowtorch device, Um, not to generalize any one group of people, but uh, that would be my my best guess. I believe connoisseurship is um, just beginning to gain greater awareness to a larger segment of the cannabis consuming public. Um, What I mean by that is that there has always been a hardcore contingent of enthusiasts, always, okay, that were into the tools that they used, that were into the techniques um, and the rituals to elevate. Um, and ultimately maximize their consumption experience. Um, I think, you know, when you start seeing people like Seth Rogen coming out with his products, you know, his houseplant products, that comes from a place of connoisseurship. Okay. You know, there there's a person who understands that the tools he interacts with has affected his experience. And so he came out with his line of tools to help, you know, elevate others' experience. Um, I don't own any of those products. That's not. That's not the type. Of, you know. That's not what I'm into. I'm into the antiques. Um, you know, that's my particular brass. How, how dare you? <laughs> uh, the, the pieces I use um, are either sterling silver or gold. Um, I'm into the precious metal antiques. Is kind of no. That's <laughs> it's okay. I'm a bit of a nut of that stuff um, but i love re I, people should look to identify the tools that express their individual individualism that express their likes what they're into um, i'm into you know antiques <laughs> really cool antique smoking tools There could be contemporary tools. There could be stuff you make. There could be stuff you repurpose. Um, There's lots of different ways to go about, you know, just, you know, finding the tools that work best and and coming up with your own little uh, toolkit for your consumption uh, ritual.